1: Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah with Gord McDonald. Thanks for sticking around Gord because I want to ask you specifically this hot question. After pictures circulated over the weekend showing panic shoppers stockpiling supplies triggered by COVID-19 fears, we're asking how concerned are you? Are you very concerned, somewhat concerned, not concerned or other? And then you can comment below.
2: I guess I'd be leaning towards somewhat concerned because I'm one of the guys reading the COVID stories every single hour uh, here on CKNW. Somewhat concerned because of the impact of a uh, two-week stay-at-home self-isolation if something did happen. Uh, Now, the chances of it happening are very slim. But if it did happen, that could be quite a disruption. So we ended up doing more shopping uh, than we normally do uh, on the weekend Now, Jody, to be honest, I probably, uh, you know, my wife and I probably have not been as prepared for the big earthquake as uh, we should have been. Mm. Um, But if the COVID-19 meant that uh, I could ride out uh, an earthquake... Uh, and ride out to being stuck self, you know, self isolation at home. Terry Shintz next to me here doing the afternoons comes in and gets sick and suddenly boom, uh, he's off to, uh, off to self isolation. And, uh, because I work beside him, I'd have to stay at home for two weeks. Uh, I'm okay. So, you know, we're supposed to be ready for big stuff anyways here on the coast, uh, for earthquakes. You know, uh, we are. We're supposed to have stuff, uh, medicine and uh, enough cash and enough water and things like that. Um, so I'm not, I'm I'm of the school that, OK, you know, COVID-19, it's not going to happen. It's pretty doubtful Gord's going to get sick from COVID-19, but it's not out of the question that somebody in my realm would be. I'm not as prepared for an earthquake as I should be, so maybe that's the excuse between the two of them to get enough, at least dry goods in, in store, that uh, I could survive uh, if I had to stay at home for two weeks, if we had to stay at home for two weeks and not go out to do any shopping. Um, and I'm also ready for when the walking dead invade my neighborhood. When I have to put up the barricades. You're
1: ready for the zombie um, apocalypse. I mean, yeah, at the end the, of the, the day. Zombie
2: apocalypse, yes.
1: A good sword. And a fence. Thanks for
2: this, Gord. As always, you gotta have food, and you gotta have enough cereal. By the
3: way, your medications.
2: Your boy eats a lot. If you need some cereal, I'll be happy to sell you a few boxes at a very reasonable (laughs) price. Stocked it up.
1: (laughs) Excellent, sir. Excellent. Good to know. I think we're on the same page. I'm somewhat concerned as well. As we share the stories, you can vote on Twitter at cknw at Jody Vance. And we have to dive into this next topic because a proposed agreement on land rights and title have been reached between what's so hereditary chiefs and uh, federal government ministers and provincial ministers here in BC, uh, bringing three long days of negotiation in Smithers to a close, and we are thinking that tentatively this is resolving a long-standing dispute over the First Nations traditional territory. Here's Carolyn Bennett.
0: I think what was made clear that is that it remains unresolved, and I think that I think Chief Was uh, at the press conference yesterday um, um you know, was clear that uh, that uh, on behalf of the hereditary chiefs, they still do not um, approve this project. Um, but I think that we were, uh, I think, very pleased to see that 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 the honesty um, with which the the three governments, the joint statement on on the discussions with the Wissotan rights uh, and title, um, was uh, able to be made by uh, by the Wissotan uh, as well as the government of British Columbia and the government of Canada, so for us to come together to be honest about where we are on these two separate issues, uh, I think was uh, was 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 truly important. That
1: Carolyn Bennett speaking uh, with Simi Sarah this morning on CKW mornings, and um, I'm not sure about you, but that didn't explain much. As I was listening to it, and there was seven minutes to the interview that that Simi conducted, and much of it left us all kind of scratching our heads as to where things really go from here. So that's why we're calling in the big guns. Our uh, Global BC Chief Political Reporter and Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins on the line. Hey, Keith. Hey, morning, Jody. Good morning. What do you make of what uh, Minister Bennett said this morning on CKNW with Simi?
4: Pretty evasive comments, I think, from the minister in her conversation with Simi, uh, not providing a lot of clarity or very little clarity to exactly what was reached uh, in terms of an agreement up there. It seems clear, though, as she did mention, there were two topics that, on the table. One was the uh, ancestral rights and title of the Wet'suwet'en uh the other one was the the coastal gasoline pipeline the pipeline has been the thing in the news obviously in recent weeks with blockades and protests and such the other subject has been probably long well long overdue for resolution that that dates back to the 1997 Delgamuukw uh, case in the Supreme Court of Canada which established that the Wet'suwet'en do indeed have uh, unextinguished title over their land but it left hanging the question of wh- how much land and where and that has to be resolved and perhaps they made some progress at that on that topic at uh, at the table but the other one uh, remains unresolved and they mentioned that in, in the joint statement that came out late yesterday from the from all sides uh, agreed that they have unresolved issues uh, still remaining when it comes to that coastal gasoline pipeline. The hereditary chiefs making public comments yesterday, they remain in opposition to the pipeline. So the the big question is, you know, what happens to the blockades and protests? And right. from my read, it seems that they're just going to continue that as if nothing happened. Having said that, now the Wasolitan are going to take two weeks to ratify this agreement, and perhaps in the context of that, um, they figure a way... Uh, to a conclusion of the coastal gas link issue. It's entirely possible the Hereditary Chiefs may change their position within the, within that confine of their own people as they go through this process for two weeks. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of people increasingly have come to the conclusion that only the Sowetan can solve this issue. It, uh, and... Uh, an imposition of a a, a conclusion or result on them is likely not going to fare very well because I don't think uh, either the federal or provincial government are in a position to be able to do that.
1: And even if the hereditary chiefs and the elected chiefs uh, come together and find a way to agree to disagree on the coastal gas link pipeline but then agree on how to move forward with this Mm -hmm. you know even if they don't you know, two weeks from now become unanimous on the subject which I think would be a stretch given um, how acrimonious this whole process has been but getting everybody at the table. I mean, for so many weeks now, Keith, you and I have talked almost daily mm-hmm. on on the are they are they having a planning meeting? Okay, now we're going to get to the smoke, and then they're all going to sit down, and everybody's talking to everybody. But are they? And there n- nothing happens. So I guess the one thing we get from this three days in Smithers is that at least the the conversation has been opened with some clear honesty on the table as to where everybody stands.
4: Yeah, no, I th- still think it's a pivotal moment. Um, and we'll see just how pivotal it is in the, in the, in the weeks ahead. But, uh, sh- surely this meeting was far preferable than continuing to be, uh, entrenched positions that don't uh, talk to each other. So yeah. it, it's, it's encouraging on that front. The other thing, Jody, I wonder if whether or not the genie's out of the bottle now and whether even if the hereditary chiefs stand down their opposition to this pipeline, The protest here simply leapfrogs the coastal gasoline pipeline and attaches itself to the Trans Mountain pipeline because I think as summer approaches, we're going to see increased protests associated with that pipeline and we may well indeed see blockades and, and other uh, major protests associated with that uh, pipeline, no matter what's uh, determined or ultimately resolved with the coastal gas link one.
1: Right, because we were expecting that. We've been talking about mm-hmm. how that we expect that to wrap up spring and summer when the weather gets good. Burnaby Man- Mountain, here we go again. We weren't well, even looking
4: CGL. Well, the the question on Trans Mountain, though, uh, mass arrest on Burnaby Mountain is one thing. That doesn't inconvenience the public. It's, right. it's, it's theater for television and, and such. But If we see that suddenly progress or or transform itself into, again, rail blockades or blockades in downtown Vancouver, that becomes quite a different matter, and that has an economic impact. And that's why you're seeing continuing to see the, the, the downside of basically these rail blockades, which leave a bunch of ships in, out of our west coast, lying in Moorage and in, in Anchorage, unable to come into Vancouver Port to pick up uh, their, their cargo, because there is no cargo. Nothing's moving on the trains to the point where ships can actually uh, pick this stuff up and move it to market. So it's, uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline could become a much bigger issue in terms of protests, because, again, if, it's, if it leaves Burnaby Mountain on the blockades... We're into a whole different chapter.
1: Now, the chiefs at the meeting, uh, we understood from Minister Bennett that the chiefs said that they felt it wasn't their place to dictate any lifting of blockades. Mm-hmm. That surprises a little, does it not?
4: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the more we go through this, the more we learn about the, those hereditary chiefs and, and their views are not always consistent. But uh, it's interesting that if, if they're not going to tell the Mohawk to stand down their blockade in Ontario and the Mohawk continue with the blockade, then things become potentially explosive in that province with uh, the Ontario Provincial Police, and perhaps even down the road, the military, because I don't think a rail blockade can be allowed to stand forever. But it's interesting, the hereditary chiefs, I'm not surprised at the position of not telling another First Nations what to do, because that is a tradition of First Nations. One doesn't tell another nation what to do.
1: Now, Global BC's Sarah McDonald is going to be joining us at 12:18 uh, this afternoon mm-hmm. for her perspective from Smithers, but she did send out a note a little bit earlier today sort of just reiterating uh, what happened at the table and what the, this draft deal reached between the Office of Wet'suwet'en and the provincial and federal governments over the weekend means and how it won't actually directly impact coastal gaslink projects and and if it is ratified then it's it's not retroactive. Like it's interesting no. to look at sort of it in for what it is. I guess.
4: Yeah. No. It's uh, very much. Everybody keeps using the the, the phrase forward looking, and it's uh, it's not retroactive. Whatever they reached up up there, it will have an impact, though. Right. Presumably on future projects and resource projects that take place within land um, considered ancestral. Title to uh, by the Soton. so it's uh, it may have an, it will likely have an impact on future development. Whether it has an impact on Coastal GasLink right now, it doesn't because Coastal GasLink issued a statement last night. They're coming. They're resuming construction activities as of today, as of this morning. So that's resuming. Uh, what where that leads to in terms of protests and injunction to fires remains to be seen. But uh, I think yesterday's agreement. Logically, is going to affect future projects rather than past ones.
1: And it's interesting, uh, Sarah, also noted that the project, the Coastal Gas Link project, is on track for completion in 2023, yep. according to the company. Keith, I just got an email, you likely did too, from Sarah McDonald, uh, saying that the RCMP are resuming patrols on Wet'suwet'en territory, uh, the RCMP has just confirmed, Sarah, uh, they are now resume, resuming those patrols on the Maurice West Forest Service Road, which is on Wet'suwet'en territory outside Houston, uh, with work resuming at the Coastal GasLink uh, work site. But the CISO outpost still remains shuttered at this point, and the RCMP patrols uh, ceasing was a major condition for the office of Wet'suwet'en when it came to talks with government officials. So what do you make of that?
4: Well, you know, the conditions the Wasolitan had was uh, RCMP had to stand down and back back off, and um, and, that's, and and that's coastal gasoline had to stop construction activities. Both of those occurred, and now that the talks are over, both of those are back on. And we'll see now whether this leads to more protests or an escalation of protests. Maybe the temperature's rising up there, but uh, I'm not entirely surprised by this because I think uh, they're also there to provide protection to coastal gasoline workers, and clearly, it's an unresolved uh, situation, I was, as was made clear in the joint statement from all the parties ye- yesterday afternoon.
1: Indeed. And speaking of unresolved situations, uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Interesting to note, I went to Twitter and I saw that hashtag corona outbreak was uh, trending, 76,000 plus tweets. So I clicked on it and popping up at the top of my Twitter feed is a, a window that says, know the facts, information and resources on the novel coronavirus and available from the Public Health Agency of Canada, with a button that links you directly to the Public Health Agency of Canada with all sorts of great information.
4: Yeah, no, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of uh, health officers, medical health officers in both provinces federally and in the united states step up and really provide a lot of public uh, information and education here you're going to you know you look at the bc government's uh, plan for a pandemic and which would occur which occurs when you have a new strain of flu that nobody's had before and suddenly it becomes very widespread in a population and leaps borders and and there's not much you can do in terms of stopping it but one thing you will be hearing a big a big part of that uh, plan of the BC government and other governments as well is public education and public awareness and messaging and so you're going to hear a lot of things Basically s- some consistency, which is basically wash your hands constantly and actually do it well There's a number of videos actually circulating if you can believe this of how to wash your hands and it, people think oh, I'll just run my hands underwater But no uh, It's uh, you have to really be aggressive when it comes to washing your hands also the other messages if you feel sick stay home Don't go to work uh, and in fact, your your colleagues. So you're going to be hearing a lot of this from provincial health officers and a lot of creative videos in the weeks ahead.
1: And the washing of hands. So having a 12 year old, I'm the queen of that's not right. That's not long enough. That's not the right mm-hmm. temperature. That's not the right amount of soap. You need to soap your. But being the daughter of a, a lab tech, my mom was the queen of washing hands because she worked with viruses every day trying to figure out uh, how to treat them. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's an interesting piece when people think, you know, oh, I always wash my hands. It's like, yes, you wash your hands, but then you touch your phone, you touch your steering wheel, you touch your door handle, you, you know, you just walk through a place or you held onto the railing on the stairway in the mall, like everything you touch transfers from one to the next, to the next. And when you wrap your head around that and you start washing your hands accordingly, that can help immensely in terms of, um, the government piece though, Keith, what are you hearing anything behind the scenes with regard to how things are being dealt with? Cause in Canada, it really feels like we do have a handle on this because we did learn so much from the SARS outbreak.
4: Well, it's a different virus than SARS in that it's going to be more widespread, but it's not as serious as SARS, which is right. quite a high mortality rate. Uh, but uh had a lot of conversations with Adrian Dix here and Bonnie Henry, Dr. Bonnie Henry, the provincial health officer, and their approach right now is what they call uh, aggressive containment, which is really do as much testing as possible to find out who has this. And then when you, when you establish a case, uh, search around that person and make sure it doesn't go any farther than, than where it already is. So contain that virus within a smaller group of people. But over time, I wonder how effective that's going to be and whether or not the virus simply leapfrogs the ability to actually contain it. And certainly we're seeing down in the United States now. And one, one thing I found interesting, uh, uh, Jody, on this is last week, Adrian sort of the Center for Disease Control posted the statistics more than a 1,000 people have been tested in BC for the virus. That compares to 600 in all of the United States. Oh, so the United I'm States testing ability, <coughs> excuse me, is uh, is just simply not as good as Canada because every test in in the states goes through Atlanta. It's a very much a centralized system down there. So they're unable to detect this virus uh in the same way that we can in Canada. We do we do more much more testing here and it was alarming to find out yesterday that two people have died in Seattle and you're now starting to see more and more people in the United States with this. And just logically, that's going to have a big impact on Canada because of the travel between the two borders. A lot of people may be walking around with this virus in in some jurisdictions without even knowing that they actually have it, because in some cases, the symptoms cannot be as serious as they are associated with other uh, flu viruses.
1: They're so mild, in fact, that people might not not even think they have a cold, never mind the coronavirus, COVID-19. Going back to the initial uh, directive, that maybe some of us who are like, if you can walk, you can work, Uh, stay home.
4: Well, stay home. Here's where it gets um, uh, potentially difficult. A lot of people don't have paid time off right. when they're sick. Uh, if you have paid days, to, sick days, that's fine. But a lot of people, you know, missing them one day's pay is a big deal for them. And for them, they may think, well, you know, I don't feel that bad. I'm going to go to work. And that's where it gets hard to, to actually combat this virus, because I think a lot of people will be going to work having the virus without actually realizing they have it, and potentially infect uh, a lot of their colleagues. So this thing's going to get a lot worse before it gets better.
1: And when we come to the hot question of the day with regard to uh, basically... Your level of concern. Now you're covering this on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I cover this on a regular basis. I asked Gordon McDonald his take on it. But I, I, I'm really curious as to what you think after seeing the pictures that were circulated over the weekend showing panicked shoppers, you know, stockpiling supplies and mm-hmm. those fears were triggered by COVID-19. Um, how concerned are you? Are you very concerned, somewhat concerned, mm-hmm. not concerned?
4: I'm very concerned, and I'm not not concerned so much about that. I think I'm going to get sick. I'm very concerned on the the global impact this could have on pe- not only on people's lives but on the on the global economy and our local economy as well. Is you, if you see people staying home, not participating in uh, in economic activity, if you see a shortage of goods in the stores, people somewhat panicking, with stocking up on things. All this together, I think, leads to a heightened level of concern. So yes, I'm very concerned. Again, not. F- because I think I'm going to get necessarily quite ill. I just think uh, on a mass scale, this is going to have an impact the likes of which we haven't seen for some time.
1: And we, we have to look out for our neighbours, as you mentioned. Not everybody can mm-hmm. afford a 14-day self-quarantine. Yeah. Uh, Keith, thank you as always for your yeah. perspective and your honesty. I really appreciate it. That's Global BC Chief Political Reporter, um, Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry. Alongside Claire Allen, CKNW contributor and Claire, you and I all morning we've been talking COVID-19 yes. from uh, what we've been seeing people, the photos of people, scratch Rambling to clear your store shelves and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it led to this discussion.
5: Right. So, what we've been talking about is sort of like after this weekend's developments and seeing COVID 19 sort of cases spread throughout the United States, and been wondering, you know, should we be panicking? Or, you know, do you kind of shrug your shoulders and think, you know, well, hopefully this too will pass? I don't really know what we should be doing because there's a lot of different reactions out there from people. But just to start off with some information, so the head of the World Health Organization says the number of cases of the new coronavirus, COVID-19, in China are continuing to decline. But outside of China, there have been 8,739 cases that have been reported from 61 countries. So Tedros um gebre sorry if I'm messing that up, it's a it's long name. A, it's a mouthful <laughs> exactly. for sure. Exactly. Says that the WHO is not ready to declare the outbreak a pandemic.
0: We are in
1: uncharted territory. We have never seen before a a a respiratory pathogen that's capable of community transmission but at the same time which can also be contained with the right measures
5: so he, they're saying it's not a pandemic but they are saying that the risk is quite high. They're ra- they're rating the sort of virus as high risk, not a pandemic yet.
1: Yet. But, but and uh, they also said they wouldn't hesitate to call it that right. in the in the event that it meets the criteria. Exactly. He's very calm in how he uh, addresses every single morning.
5: Yes, yeah, you know his voice hasn't really changed from day to day. You haven't mm-hmm. seen a big panic in his eyes. But um so the United States actually over the weekend reported uh, recorded its first two deaths attributed to COVID-19. That was just down in Washington Washington state. State. yes, Both men had underlying health issues. The first man was in his 50s, and he had no history of travel or contact with a known coronavirus case. And that sort of means that the case was acquired through community transmission. Right, jumping
1: from person to person in the community, someone who's walking around with the virus. Exactly. Mm. So
5: then the second victim was a man in his 70s, and he was hospitalized at Evergreen Health Medical Center in Kirkland. Also, he had underlying health conditions. He died on Saturday, and uh, he, and so, you know, that was the newest information we had. And here's a report from uh, Cairo News, our neighbors to the south.
6: There are a total of 10 confirmed cases of the coronavirus in King County. That number includes the two people who died. Three people tested positive for coronavirus in Snohomish County. And around the region, several schools and businesses are closed tomorrow over coronavirus concerns. But the focus right now is in Kirkland where six people with the virus have been living at the same nursing facility.
5: So that's a big concern that we have six people at this nursing facility and in that report they spoke to some people that wanted to go see their elderly parents that were in there. They were allowed in at some point but had to wear masks and take precautions. But if you have a family member that's in that in that facility who may already have underlying health issues, you're probably very concerned. So back here in Canada, Ontario was reporting the three new cases and that brings the total Total in that province to 18, and the total in Canada to 27. Right. In our provinces, we have a province rather. We have health, um, eight cases, and four of the eight people have recovered. So here is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix.
7: We in British Columbia have tested 1,012 individuals. We test some individuals multiple times, so that's 1,425 tests, which is uh, uh, well over twice as many have been done in the entire United States.
1: That is staggering. Yeah. I know. That, that is, is the staggering crazy. part that we've tested more people in British Columbia than the entirety of the United, United States. States of America.
5: Right, exactly. So you know, those are the statistics. That is those are the cold hard facts on the virus. Yeah. However, if you were watching the news or social media over the weekend, you may have seen scenes of chaos unfolding at stores across North America. In BC, we had major lineups at some of our Costco's and also superstores. I those images made me question my response to this virus. I was thinking am I not taking this seriously enough? Like why are people stocking up on toilet paper? Like, is this a, is this an emergency that I'm just not on top of? Am I just living in la la land? Do you have an earthquake kit? Uh
1: no. You're in La La Land. Because <laughs> exactly. that's what the conversation with Gord McDonald when I ran the hot question of the day by him, because mm-hmm. you and I crafted the hot question yes, together, yes. which I highly recommend everybody has a look at. The hot question of the day is after the pictures circulated over the weekend showing panic shoppers stockpiling supplies triggered by COVID-19 fears, we asked, are you concerned? Or how concerned are you? Are you very concerned, somewhat concerned, not concerned, or other? Mm-hmm. And lots of people are chiming in with that. And I think in this Uber Eats era mm-hmm. a lot of people don't have a lot of food in their house and if someone said you need to stay home for 14 days could you eat
5: oh i could i'm fine i got a, fine. i got a big supply closet of i you know i go to costco then and you i buy in bulk then you don't need to worry i know but you start to see these images right and you start mm-hmm. to see people wearing masks you see celebrities wearing masks on when they travel yeah that's a lot that's a People get their news from celebrities, unfortunately, and they start to think, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Gwyneth Paltrow is wearing a mask on her way to Paris. Like everyone we're in, this is going to be the end of the world or whatever. And it's funny because the Surgeon General over the weekend said, you've got to stop. They told the American people, stop buying masks. They're not going to help you. But as we start to see more of this stuff, people are starting to question what their response is. So- just to, you know, top this all off. Yes, please. Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's our provincial health officer and she's reminding people that most COVID-19 cases are mild and at this point there is no need to take drastic measures. Yes, it is important to make sure you have that emergency kit, make sure you have your medications, but no, I don't think we need to rush out and stockpile and hoard things. We're not at that point and we wouldn't expect that even with a pandemic. And so, you know, she says that BC health officials have a protocol should a pandemic be declared.
1: I think we've learned a lot from the SARS outbreak. Claire Allen, thanks for this. Our hot question today. Check it out at Jody Vance. And in this time of worry around COVID-19, it's no surprise that some are searching for safeguards or, or remedies that might stave off the virus. Also unsurprising is how there are those who will prey on such fears and try and sell snake oil remedies that might hurt more than they help. So it's time to separate the science from the placebos. And to do that, we bring in the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, and the man you know as the germ guy, Jason Tetro, joins us on the line. Thanks for doing this, Jason. It's such a pleasure. Let's dive right into... First and foremost, the placebos, the 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 old wives' tales, the the cure alls. I was hanging out with a girlfriend of mine who she loves to Google MD. She likes to look online as to, to possible uh, things that might you know cure without going to the doctor. I, I mm-hmm. must add that she is um, typically very on top of things. However, she stopped me in my tracks when she said, "I've got my whole family." Uh, taking silver solution. And I, oh, s- boy. I said, what, what, what is that? And then I Googled it. And the number one thing, like the Mayo Clinic came back and said, yeah, there's no amount of that that's safe.
8: Okay. So here's the thing. Okay. We have disinfectants. Okay. Things you've put on surfaces like your kitchen counter. We have antiseptics, which you put on things like your hands and your wounds. Right. Yeah. And then there's stuff that goes internal stuff you drink, stuff you eat. All right. So silver can be a really good disinfectant and it can actually help to prevent infection for wounds. Right. Hmm. But the minute that you inhale it or the minute that you actually drink it, what ends up happening is you are giving your body silver, which could potentially turn your body blue. Does it actually kill anything? No, because What happens is that silver works against anything that happens to be organic. And surprise, surprise, everything inside of your mouth and your nose is organic. So it'll be wasted long before it comes anywhere near a virus.
1: How is that being marketed? I've seen infomercials in the United States where there's a woman literally saying it cures coronavirus.
8: Well, you see, the thing is that in There's a regulation that essentially says that if it's a disinfectant for surfaces, you can say that. Or if it's sort of an antiseptic for wounds, you can probably say that. Mm. But back in 1999, the FDA actually said you cannot say silver does anything when you've put it inside of your body. So what's happening is that these people are mixing things up so that they're saying one thing that is true, but they're sort of associating it with another thing which is completely untrue and illegal. And I don't know if you remember, a a couple weeks ago, remember how Purell got in trouble uh, for for saying that they made these claims against viruses and they were told to stop? Yes. Yeah, well, it was the same idea. It was the fact that you could say that for some products, but the ones that they were saying it for on their website were for other products that actually couldn't be said that. And they were basically said, please stop that. And they did, and everything was good. Well, this is the thing. They stopped. These other people, unfortunately, are not.
1: It is all in the name of making a buck, and it's rooted in, um, you know, giving you that fearful piece, right? We have this problem, clearly. It's the top headline, uh, globally with COVID-19. Everybody is a little bit worried, if not very worried, if not panicking about it, depending on where mm-hmm. you go to Costco. Um, but are, are the placebo, or are the homeopathy pieces here uh, coming into play? Is oil of oregano going to save us?
8: Uh, no. Okay. I mean, when you talk about essential oils, all right, they are great for protecting your food from going spoiled and rotten all right? They're not so good at protecting your lungs from a virus. So once again, we're looking at how we can use essential oils and uh, the terpenes and sesquiterpenes and stuff like that to be able to protect foods and possibly even surfaces and maybe even our hands. Actually, it doesn't work on our hands. I tested that 20 years ago. Don't. But it's not going to do a dang thing for your lungs or if you're drinking it for your gastrointestinal system. So if you think that you can go sort of that natural route to be able to fight a coronavirus infection, it's not going to do you a heck of a lot of good.
1: My aunt told me to take oil of oregano when I got uh, flu a couple of years mm-hmm. ago. That is some nasty taste and stuff, and I love oregano. <laughs> oh, I love
8: awful. oregano too, but... Oh, and the other thing is, is that the actual concentration that's needed in order for it to be effective against viruses is so high mm-hmm. that the minute that you come near it, the first thing you're going to do is run away. So remember something, the, the concentration that you're using, if you happen to be using this, is so low in comparison to what is necessary to kill that essentially all you're doing is you're probably making your insides a bit, you know, smellier.
1: It is quite something where how deep we will go into the natural sort of m- medicine side of any whole foods or uh, even in a drugstore now you can find that here are your natural remedies. Um, another that was brought to my attention was Sambucol. It's like everybody in my family's taking Sambucol again. I'm doing my, mm-hmm. my journalistic follow-up. I'm like, it's a berry extract for goodness sake. Yeah.
8: Yeah, and again, in in this particular case, you're looking at the phytochemicals that are going to be helpful in reducing uh, the level of pathogens in your gastrointestinal system. Has absolutely nothing to do do with your lungs. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's great to get those phytochemistries inside of you because they're very good for balancing your immune system and helping to reduce inflammation. But at the end of the day, You know, if you've got a virus that's inside of you and it's doing some nasty things in your lungs, what you're taking into your gut is really not going to have that much of an influence. So for day-to-day, sure, if you want to do that, that's fine. Probiotics, apple cider vinegar, whatever. But... In order to be able to help you fight off a disease, especially such as one as what's caused by this COVID-19, you're going to have to do something a little bit more uh, um, medical, if you will, and actually trust the doctors and healthcare professionals.
1: Yeah, Listen to scientists. We are with Jason Tetro, who is the germ guy and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. That's why we're touching base with you today, Jason, is to talk these things through because people are looking for uh, a quick fix, an easy protection. What can I take? Miracle mineral supplement. That sounds like a good idea.
8: Oh, my gosh. You're making me have PTSD about Ebola. <laughs> Sorry, <yeah. laughs> because... When Ebola came around in, in West Africa, of course, it was killing upwards of 50 to 70% of uh, whoever was infected, and nobody had any idea what to do. And so some of these uh, doctors just came in and said, well, take my you know, MMS, and it's going to cure you of all ales. Well, the fact is is that MMS is kind of like bleach. It produces a chlorine, and that chlorine is going to essentially cause some acidity in your gut, and your gut's going to make you feel unwell, and that's going to lead to some some sort of inflammation that's supposedly going to get rid of the bug and no it does not that sounds <laughs> so the only thing that they the only thing that they found with that though is the fact that if you actually hydrate people very very well like give them five liters of saline a day they may actually survive from ebola and surprise surprise if you ever have a cold the flu or in this particular case the coronavirus what's the first thing we say stay
1: hydrated right stay hydrated. So, Jason, tell us what we should do if we are, what, what the WHO would say, asymptomatic.
8: Well, I mean, asymptomatic just simply means that the virus is probably just growing inside of you um, and that you might still be able to spread it. And, and I mean, that's okay. But remember, you still have to be within like that three to five feet or or one to two meters of an individual before you catch it, Um, the the greater likelihood, to be honest with you, is that you're going to pick it up off of a surface like an airport kiosk terminal or maybe an ATM machine or something along those lines if for some reason someone actually had the virus and coughed on it. But, I mean, there's, what, eight people, seven people now in British Columbia who have it? Yes. Uh, And then I think they're self-isolated. So the likelihood of someone actually, you know, spreading that to you is very 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 low but if you are concerned keep your hands clean hand sanitizer if you're not near a soap and water sink Uh, and if you're worried about those people who are coughing sputtering spurting whatever it is uh, because there are other viruses that could potentially cause illness you keep a scarf around your neck and then you just sort of put the scarf over your nose and your mouth you can use it numerous times because a mask you can only use once and you don't have to be fit tested for it. You can wear it any way you like and it's going to look great. Whereas if you're using a particular type of mask, you actually have to be trained and fit tested to be, make sure that it actually
1: works. And you end up touching your face a million times when you're adjusting the mask that doesn't fit you properly. Uh,
8: you know, I'm almost at a point now where I don't even talk about that because studies have shown that we touch our faces about 16 times every hour, and probably during this conversation, I've probably face palmed about five times already. So the Sorry. thing is, <laughs> the thing is that. We're not going to be able to stop touching our faces. And I get it. We want to tell people that. We want to get people not to touch their faces, but it's impossible. So the best thing to do is make sure those hands are clean so that when you do touch your face, that there's no likelihood that you're going to self-inoculate.
1: Thank you very much for the great advice. Always appreciate you cutting through the noise for us, Jason. It is such a pleasure to talk with you. He's the germ guy. He's lovely. He's the host of the Super Awesome Science Show. He's Jason Tetro. You should hear that podcast. It is very cool. And with news of new cases of COVID-19 over the weekend, and in fact, in the last number of minutes with more cases in Washington state, we're now wondering about the frontline healthcare workers and protections being put in place to care for them. We need... That support certainly in the event this outbreak grows as predicted. Now, while risk is still continuing to be low for Canadian citizens, uh, certainly nurses must be giving uh, significant attention to protocols around COVID 19. And to garner some insight into what that might look like, we welcome back to the show our next guest, the president of the BC Nurses Union, Christine Sorensen. Christine, thanks for doing this. Oh, good morning, Jody. Happy to chat with you. Uh, and this one is, I don't even know where to begin, like nurses are angels on any given day, but certainly in a fearful time, how to, how to, how to preface it, like this is a time where every citizen globally is concerned at least, what steps are being taken to uh, pr- protect nurses uh, as we move forward?
0: Well, I think we can step back and sort of say from a, a high level view, you know, BCNU at this point, we're closely monitoring the developments uh, and we're in direct contact with the health authorities, the provincial health, uh, medical health officer and the BC Centre for Disease Control uh, to, to monitor the changes that are certainly coming much quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have stepped up our, our weekly telephone calls. We've asked for those to happen twice a week so that we are uh, monitoring the situation in a more timely ma- uh, manner um, we fully expect the health authorities and the government to ensure that the appropriate uh, protective equipment is available to all healthcare providers uh, and that nurses have access to those when they need them.
1: So, what does that look like? Is that what we're seeing when we are uh, watching people being put into quarantine in, in mm-hmm. visuals, whether it be China or Japan? We've seen South Korea, we've seen some in Italy, um, the, the sort of hazmat looking suits with the mask?
0: Right, so uh, at this point, this novel uh, coronavirus is deemed to be just droplet spread, okay. um, but we are we are um, asking um, and demanding that I guess we say demanding uh, that nurses be um, allowed to use what we call the precautionary principle, uh, so where they're working in environments where there's chemical disease, they follow the directions of the employer, but they get to make their own personal decision at the point of care. Um, their own risk assessment. And the medical health officer has supported that. Uh, And so that allows them to uh, make the decision on whether or not uh, they require a full uh, uh, respirator, like so the N95 respirator mask. They should be gowning, uh, gloving, and that's where you see the people moving into full face shields and maybe even wearing goggles. Uh, And so um, they have access to that equipment The nurses should be able to make the decision at point of care, particularly with a patient who's a suspected patient of COVID Mm -hmm. or confirmed patient of COVID. They absolutely would be wearing that level of personal protective equipment. Um, But the average person presenting to an emergency room with uh, a cough or feeling illness, some sort of respiratory uh, disease, uh, there is protocols in place to have those people isolated as quickly as possible. They should be put put on a mask, put up surgical mask on as soon as they can, separated from the rest of the population, uh, attended to by one specific nurse or two, two uh, a tag team of nurses who would be then wearing the protective equipment and screening would take place.
1: We're with Christine Sorensen, the BC Nurses Union president, talking about how our frontline healthcare care workers uh, will be supported in dealing with the inevitability of COVID-19, which we're not trying to stoke fears here. We've been the last number of segments laying out how this uh, virus is uh, known to be transmitted to this point and updates on um, number of presumptive cases versus confirmed cases versus uh, those who have tragically uh, died due to COVID-19. Most of those uh, elderly are with underlying uh, issues, health issues. So, the one but the one piece from what we learned in China or perhaps what we learned back in two thousand and three with the SARS outbreak, Christine, is is how to how quickly things can escalate with with a virus like this. Certainly that happened in Ontario. So that so that our frontline healthcare workers we don't have a situation which we did see in China where some of the healthcare workers in their thirties and forties that were otherwise healthy perished due to COVID-19.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's the concern raised from nurses across the country is that uh, we want nurses to be able to uh, be able to access the equipment they need to protect themselves. Uh, I have full confidence in the, in the BC nurses. Uh, this is what we do every day. Right. And they're professionals. And we'll make the right judgment. They're not going to be, you know, using more equipment than's necessary. They understand that they're, you know, they're, we need to maintain an, an adequate supply and, and use them at all times. Um, We also need to be conscious of the fact that any nurse that may have been exposed to the virus who are symptomatic um, may need to, will probably be asked to self-isolate. They may be having to call in sick. They have to stay at home. So now we have uh, a reduced number of nurses um, also being able to work when we need more nurses. And we already are in a bit of a nursing shortage. So. Uh, well, not a bit, we're in a nursing shortage. So we have nurses who are working overtime trying to manage the situation who may have been exposed, may have to stay home or may have to stay home and take care of a sick family member. So we're watching all of that situation very closely um, because this, we need to ensure that we have Uh, enough nurses to provide the care to the patients who are coming through the door, particularly if there are people who are going to be coming in through the door with COVID.
1: And that is the the concern. You literally took the next question off the tip of my tongue with regard to we're already in a nurse's shortage. So we can't Very well afford. We've already got nurses dealing with the flu, the everyday Mm -hmm. virus that we're you know we get our flu shots for. Nurses get sick. I mean, frontline workers often are dealing with um, you know the sickest among us. So what what can we do to do our best due diligence to not infect our frontline healthcare workers? If I have the symptoms of even just a regular flu, but they're getting to be more serious, more significant, I can't get to the doctor and I think I should go to emergency. Am I calling first? Am I showing up with a mask? Am I, how how, how best can I do this uh, ethically? Yeah,
0: I think, I think if people have a family physician, uh, a, a primary care provider, nurse practitioner, uh, I think the most important thing they should do is first is call ahead, say, this is the symptoms I have, what would you like me to do? Uh, if they are directed, uh, and, and other people can call HealthLink, certainly, and ask the same same advice, If they are very unwell, though, and are feeling that they do need to go to an emergency department, they absolutely should go to the emergency department. They should put a mask on immediately once they get there. Uh, They should notify the staff that they have a respiratory condition. If there's somebody who they believe they may be infected in COVID, and these would be people who've traveled to areas or been in contact with people who've traveled to certain areas of the world, Um, you know, they they really should then be um, identifying that uh, as quickly as possible. So that the staff can then isolate them. Hand washing will be critical. It's the same message we've been telling everybody. Uh, and to self-isolate and stay at home, please don't go out into the public if you're not feeling well uh, and and be grocery shopping and doing all of your regular things. Uh, stay home, wash your hands frequently, isolate from other people, um, but do call ahead. Emergency rooms won't necessarily be answering phones and doing triaging over the phone. So if you choose to go there because you're feeling really unwell, uh, Wear a mask as soon as you get into the, into the emergency department and let the staff know.
1: And if you don't have a mask on hand, we learned earlier from Jason Tetra, wear a scarf. Wrap your scarf around <laughs> and hold it up while you're going into emergency. And if you're going into your doctor's office, call ahead, let them know, uh, I have a really bad cough and I need to get in there. So, you know, cough, yep. fever, these are the things we're looking for.
0: Yeah, cough, fever. People who've got you know symptoms of, of you know, and it's a t- difficult time of the year because we have influenza yeah. circulating. We have cold, just general colds. I, I I hear people who have what they think are flu symptoms and they're vomiting and and that that's gastrointestinal. So there's lots of things that are going around. Uh, I would I would implore people to mostly it's the fever, the chills, the co- the coughing. Um, it's the covering of your face, washing your hands, yeah. using hand sanitizer. If it's available, please use hand sanitizer. Um, and, uh, and and cough into your elbow, not into your hands. I mean, we tell people to cough into the crook of their arm. Children seem to have learned that skill at school and uh, starting to see that spread. Uh, and, and stay out of large public areas. You you really don't need to infect other people.
1: Great advice. I appreciate you taking some time out for us today, Christina, as always. Thank you so much, Jody. Happy to chat with you anytime. Thank you. Christine Sorensen, the BC Nurses Union President. We got to talk about Washington state. State of emergency for our neighbors just to the south. Six people now confirmed dead of COVID-19. Um, this seems to be escalating quickly and when there's a state of emergency declared anywhere in the United States it's of note and when it's right to the south of us uh, it's very much grabbing the attention of those in and around the lower mainland and in southern British Columbia certainly uh, for those living right on the border I mean it's it's something that is part of our regular day we hop across the border to buy some milk and chicken or we go and pick, get some gas or or you, you're heading to your Trader Joe's what are you doing? You're just going to go down and do a little shopping. You're going to Bella's fair. You go to Bellingham, you hang out. Uh, Those perhaps aren't as frequent now that there are fears about Washington state, Uh, erring on the side of caution perhaps, or are you concerned at what might be going on at the border? It it could get a little bit messy coming to and from Washington state, or is that just blowing it all out of proportion? That was pretty much our morning meeting conversation in a nutshell, which is why we uh, picked up the phone and we called Len Saunders, who is an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. You've heard him here on the program before. And uh, it's great to connect once again. Len, thanks for doing this. No problem. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, we've talked with you about, um, you know, what you declare at the border with regard to cannabis use. Uh, you and I were, you were in studio with one of your clients uh, regarding carrying even CBD oil supplements across the border. It can be a tenuous time to come to and from the United States. And now with what's happening in Washington state with regard to the COVID-19 virus, what should we know?
3: Well, what you should know is if you are either a a U.S. citizen or a U.S. permanent resident, this does not affect you traveling back to the U.S. But for your average Canadian, this could affect you if you've traveled to one of these countries, which now is on this travel ban for entering the U.S. Can you explain the travel ban right now? Well, so what the Americans have done, they first started with China, Mm -hmm. um, or at least individuals who've been to China in early February, so just a a month ago, and they basically said if you've been within the last 14 days in China, uh, you are not admissible to the United States unless you are a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. And at the time, I actually had a client, American citizen in Seattle, his Chinese-Canadian wife was visiting China. And he wondered if she landed in Vancouver, could she come through the land border? And I said she could try. But if they found out by looking at her Canadian passport that she'd been to China within the last 14 days, she would be denied entry. So that's a good example of someone who would be deemed inadmissible just for a temporary period of time.
1: Right. So then it would be a 14-day hold on on her uh, access to the U.S.?
3: Exactly. And, you know, what I suspected when the Americans stopped allowing uh, individuals to fly from China into the US, I suspected that a lot of people would just use Vancouver as kind of a stopping off point. I actually haven't heard anyone being denied entry because I think most people have heard in the news that they could be and so they're staying away from the border until they're over that 14 day period.
1: Now, I do want your uh, take on, or, or if you don't mind, taking the temperature in Washington state with this uh, declaration of a state of emergency and what seems like minute to minute updates coming out of uh, the Seattle newsrooms. Um, what are you hearing there?
3: Well, you know, I just saw that there's now six people who've been confirmed uh, who've died in Washington state of the coronavirus. So my concern would be for the Canadians, you know, people going into Canada. You know, it, it almost seemed like it's reversed itself from the Americans being concerned of foreigners coming into this country. I'd be more concerned if I was a Canadian border officer having Americans going north when you see these you know these numbers increasing dramatically just within one day.
1: Right. And a state of emergency being declared. It, it is ramping up everybody's anxiety levels. And to that end, if you just pause with me for a second, Len, because I want to open up the phone lines uh, so Ben can uh, get some people on the phone board here, because I want to ask about the hot question of the day. This all ties in together. Uh, after sort of pictures circulated over the weekend showing panic shoppers here in British Columbia stockpiling supplies triggered by COVID-19, fears we're asking about your level of concern are you very concerned somewhat concerned not concerned at all or other I've left that open and there are some comments that I'll read back off there but if you want to comment on this give us a call 604-280-9898 604-280-9898 or star 9898 hands free on your cell phone uh, to talk through the the level of concern because we're we're being very cautious in terms of speaking about the facts that we know to be true. But Len, I wanted to talk to you because how much need to be said at the border? Um, as you're saying, like maybe it's the Canadian government that should be looking toward the, the people coming up from Washington state fleeing a state of emergency. Uh, but that needs to be national declarations and, 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 huge political declarations, not a decision made at the border. Absolutely. So, people coming north, people going south, it's not a health health regulations don't come into play, I guess that's my question.
3: Well, what my my concern is, like my li- livelihood depends upon people crossing over the border, whether it's on green cards, work permits, waivers. If these borders end up getting shut down because of concerns on either side of coronavirus, it won't just be me as an immigration lawyer It's going to affect cross-border trade, whether it's Americans going up to Whistler, spending their money skiing every weekend, or Canadians coming to Washington State to buy gas, to get groceries, to get their packages. So for me, it will be almost eerily similar to 9-11, but at least with 9-11, you knew there was an end to the temporary shutdown of the border. This could go for days, weeks, or months. Who knows? This is kind of new territory in my mind.
1: Now, you're located in Blaine. Your business is in Blaine, Washington. So you would see uh, an increase or decrease in traffic uh, crossing to and from. Have you seen anything noticeable?
3: Well, I just went up north, so I went up to White Rock about an hour and a half ago yeah. and came back about half an hour ago. So I'm you know, crossing the border frequently. The borders were very quiet today. Mm. I think a lot of people are staying away, whether it's coming south or going north, until they get some kind of clarity on what's going on. Going north, I wasn't asked any questions about coronavirus. Now, I did come through the nexus lane, and I'm a dual citizen, so I can't be denied But the same thing south. There was no question. So I don't know if they're asking everybody or nobody. It's one of those issues nobody will know until you start hearing, you know, cases of denied entries. Right. But I think a lot of people are avoiding uh, crossing. And with this recent state of emergency in this state, if I was a Canadian living in the lower mainland, I think I'd think second about coming down to Washington state.
1: You know what? I've got Norma on the phone line. She lives in uh, south Surrey. Uh, Norma, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I just had a
0: couple of questions. It's, I just was driving home and heard this on the on your station and I went, what? I'm uh, flying out of Bellingham tomorrow to Palm Springs. <laughs> and I'm going, well, so being a state of emergency, does that, in, does that mean that I can't uh, go across the border or does that mean that my, um, you know, my health insurance would be not covered me in the States? That's a biggie or I'm not quite sure what the ramifications of this is.
1: Then can you help Norm out on that?
3: Absolutely. So as I just said, the borders are open. Everything is still flowing back and forth. It is very quiet. Even though there's a state of emergency in Washington State, you have to remember that the borders are the federal government. So unless the federal government shuts down the borders, which I don't think they're going to unless this becomes you know more of a pandemic like over in China, you're right. still going to see people crossing back and forth. But who knows, if you go down to Palm Springs – And the border shuts down, you may not be able to go back north up to Canada. Who knows?
1: Does that answer your question, Norma? Yes, it does. Okay, thank you very much. Have, tra- have travel insurance, and coming up later in the show, we're going to connect with uh, Claire Newell of Travel Best bets and talk exactly about that. When you're traveling to a destination, regardless of where it is, you have to be prepared that you could be locked down anywhere because we're seeing uh, places and spaces shut down in Seattle, actually. You just heard it on Terry Schintz's news. Um, there's a skyrise uh uh, in downtown Seattle and there is a school there as well, both being shut down uh, and then will be cleared out. So we saw that with the uh, the Diamond Princess in Yokohama, Japan that that was held in quarantine for ages and ages. Like this is an ever evolving situation. So Len, I really appreciate you uh, lending us some of your insight here and certainly uh, good to know that any happenings at the border are really a, a federal issue and, and would be the next level of, of concern when a state of emergency is called in Washington state is that is everybody's on high alert, right?
3: Exactly. And I'll keep you up to date. You know, if I hear more developments over the next few days at the ports here.
1: Would appreciate that. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Jody. Have a great day.
1: And you too. That is Len Saunders, immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. Have you been watching the markets? They've kind of been in flux to say the least. A uh, bit of a bump today, right now up... 860. I think you might have heard Terry Shintz talking about the TSX as well, but certainly bouncing back a bit on this Monday. Many wondering what this means for investments, long-term, uh, pensions, pondering what to do this tax season, being that it's RSP deadline, what to do, what to do. Uh, let's talk to somebody who knows and, and talk it through for real. Jeffrey Sandler in studio with me, portfolio strategist with Linton Wealth Management at Raymond James. Uh, oh, we got the wrong microphone on. Hold on one sec. You want me to move? No, you can go right there. I believe. Oh, it's just the lights out in that microphone, is it? Yeah, it
6: says it's on, but it's
1: not. It's not. Yeah, yeah. Roll over here. Some we've got, we've got a technical problem. Look ladies. how easy <laughs> that was. You know, it's just like <laughs> the Dow. It's like a technical glitch. <laughs> Jeffrey, thank you very much for coming in studio to talk with us. You're super welcome. So, where do we begin? Uh, what? Did you see happen in the markets last week? A correction,
6: uh, a classic ten percent move from uh, uh, from a stock market that we'd been talking about for a while was a little bit pricey. It had, and by pricey, I don't mean overly expensive like the two thousand dot-com bubble. What I mean is just it had been going straight up almost like a GIC, like a bond, you know, week after week relentlessly for six months. And it looked like it needed a good rest. Any excuse would have done, but this was a really good excuse.
1: Yeah, COVID-19 being that excuse. And then we, I mean, watching it last week was quite something. It's down 1,000, down 1,200, down 1,000. And then Friday, it it Rallied.
6: Yeah, funny when the when the uh, traders and the people who operate the algorithmic or the mathematically triggered trading systems go away for the weekend. The risk is that there will be some kind of announcement on the Saturday or Sunday, which would push the market violently in one direction or the other. So they tend to go home. What's called neutral or or uh, balanced.
1: Bring so they, back no some bias. of what was lost, right?
6: Yeah. So they get out. So Friday looked just like that. It kind of rallied a bit and struggled a bit and then held its own for the day and then nothing happened. Today, it was very important that there be a bounce day, and there was and mm-hmm. there is. You just mentioned it. And the last hour of trading, that that you and I are, are in right now, right, is, is the one that determines the mood pretty much for the week. It'll it'll tell you whether or not there's still a lot of fear around, a little, or or it's abated. And at the moment, it looks like it's backing off a little.
1: Yeah. As we sit here, let me just hit refresh on my Dow. Uh, it's uh, twenty six three forty one, up nine thirty one. So every time I've looked down since you walked in the studio, it's jumped a hundred points.
6: It's up four hundred since I left my building ten minutes ago. So wow. There you go.
1: So. To, to give that perspective yet again, so what happens on a Monday, and specifically in the final hour of trading, which we are in right now, often dictates the, the mood.
6: It, it gives you a good idea of what professional traders and uh, portfolio managers, people who control significant pools, are thinking in terms of their risk bias. And this holds true after crashes. After Last week wasn't a crash, it was a correction. Crash is a whole different...
1: Uh, well, let's talk a little discussion. bit about a crash, because that was 2008, right? That's mm-hmm. what people are thinking. Oh, my God, it's happening again.
6: Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody's going to...
6: Yeah, the big difference, and I forgot to mention this last time somebody uh, brought me into um, the radio station and said, what's going on? I forgot to mention, well, this isn't 2008 for one huge reason. There isn't $3 trillion, $4 trillion worth of completely worthless, fraudulent housing bonds hidden somewhere in the capital markets waiting to harpoon the entire banking system. So... That's not there, meaning a crash is probably nowhere near as likely. I don't think it is. However, there are other things that weren't there in 08. So 12 years ago, we didn't have the worries about uh, repercussions from Brexit, the repercussions from the Italian system, which is really still floundering. And they're all kind of keep picking on the Italians. I should come up with other examples. Canada and all the commodities, oil prices. So there's all sorts of stuff underneath the headlines that's causing problems and all of that together came into play last week not just the virus Uh, and if you if you start forecasting economic growth and say going to be slower in china japan korea latin america australia canada usa well that's the r word recessions right um, nothing market hates the recession word and the market most especially hates the unknown if it knows things are getting worse it can behave a certain way. If it knows things are getting better, it'll behave a certain way. If it doesn't know what's going on, it drops. It doesn't matter if it's going to be good news or bad news, it'll fall right. because it doesn't know. It's unsure. It's uncertain. It can't make decisions. And it's a mathematically driven beast. And the algorithms and automated trading systems connected to it will tend to exacerbate or push the moves much further than when we'd normally think. If you think. This kind of news would deserve a 4 or 5% correction. Maybe you get 10 or 11 That's what we got.
1: Because it was triggered, and once the algorithms kicked in, boom, 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 boom,
6: Selling begot selling. Mm. Fear begets
1: more fear. So what, in, sorry, I should reiterate if you've just tuned in, Jeffrey Sandler, Portfolio Strategist with Linton Wealth Management at Raymond James. Uh, if somebody is sitting nervously <laughs> thinking about their pension or nervously looking at their portfolio right now, what say you?
6: well don 't worry about your pension it 's probably in good hands. Uh, modern pension operations have uh, for the most from what i 'm aware of, have excellent risk controls. I used to be involved um, more heavily with the institutional side, but now they're they 're very agile and they 're very adept at handling these kinds of risks. Your own personal money well, it, depending on your age and your circumstance if you 're really putting the RSP money away in other words you really aren 't going to look at it yet there 's no reason why you 'd have to go in there and dip into it in a few months if something happened then You know, a stock market that's beaten up is better than a stock market that's going up every day. Yeah. So, you know, what what would I be inclined to do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd look at it and go, okay. And then I'd I'd buy something that I can live with. And if you have very strong feelings about ethical companies or very strong feelings about the environment or you're enamored with utility companies, whatever it is. Utilities I always mention because people will have a gas bill, a hydro bill, uh, the of course, the cell phone bill, et cetera, but they won't own. The companies that provide these things that they're paying to, and my rule is always make more money on them than they do on you.
1: Oh, I like that.
6: Yeah, I mean, huh. if you're if you're you know if you're paying Telus a great big, I'm Chunk. speaking
1: on Telus only
6: because yeah. I like them
1: because <laughs> <laughs> you are a Telus customer. Well, uh, sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and
6: and uh, you know I think we all are, but the the. Um, the bottom line is, if I'm, if you're paying all that money every month to Telus for all that stuff you're using, it would be nice to have a little money in Telus because they pay a great big dividend, etc. But I can apply that logic mm-hmm. to a lot of names. People hate their banks. Yeah. Well, they should own their banks. Mm-hmm. You don't like dealing at that bank? They're, you know, they don't like you because you're too small or something like that. Fine, buy a little bit of the stock. Buy a little bit more. Buy. A, just put as away. opposed
1: to saying I'm not buying them because I hate them.
6: Well, you can either get mad or get even. Right. Making more money on them than they do on you is getting even.
1: And where does that come into play? Because you mentioned the ethical piece or the, you Mm -hmm. know, making sure that your portfolio is aligned with your personal beliefs. I mean, if you're vegan, do you own a lot of dairy or beef stocks, you know, whatever? Um, It's hard to do, but you can
6: do it. Mm -hmm. And ethical funds actually have uh, some of the better ones have better records than some non-ethical ones because along with ethical behavior, guess what? The companies tend to do better. Mm. So, um, excuse me, so... Uh, if you do your homework, you can get involved with where you want to be. You don't have to have uh, you know, gun makers and, and uh, military contractors and things in the portfolio. If you want to get a mutual fund that stays away from all that kind of stuff, just look around.
1: That's an option. Jeffrey, thanks for this. You're very welcome. That flew by. Boy, I learned a lot there. And where's the Dow now? We're going to keep our eye on it. Uh, up 931 points. Looks
6: like a strong close. Good last hour.
1: Looks 988 points with one refresh. There you go. Jeffrey Sandler, a portfolio strategist, Linton Wealth management at Raymond James. Always a pleasure. And what a busy weekend it's been. What a busy Monday it's been. We're keeping Reggie Giacchini so busy. He had to do CKNW mornings earlier and then so much happened between then and now. We had to invite him back. He is our Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, thank you.
9: My eyes are still rolling around.
1: What? I mean how do you keep track of how quickly things are happening
9: with regard to u.s politics man sometimes i don't sometimes i wait for alarms to go off and then i turn around and look to see what the breaking news is
1: and here we go so let's update our listener on what has happened since you chatted with Simi earlier today
9: well, since we chatted earlier today, we had another person come out and say that they were going to drop out of the uh, the presidential race for the Democratic side, and that would be Amy Klobuchar. That follows a good number of sixth-place finishes in the early primaries and caucuses. It was kind of, uh, you know... Almost a guarantee that we were likely going to see her come out of the race, if not before tomorrow, at least in the immediacy following tomorrow. But here we are now with two center of the road candidates uh, leaving the race, kind of, you know, putting all the bets into either Joe Biden or Michael Bloomberg to be the person to go after uh, uh, Bernie Sanders.
1: So Amy Klobuchar joins. Pete Buttigieg, who I watched his speech uh, yesterday evening, and it it was interesting watching the the sort of flood of uh, adulation, admiration uh, for Pete Buttigieg for making the call when he did to step out of the race. And now Amy Klobuchar joins him. Will those two then join Joe Biden on stage for his rally for Super Tuesday?
9: Well, all eyes are pointing to yes right now. And that's A, because there was some sleuthing done and uh it was found out that a private jet had been, uh, you know, rented to be flown from South Bend, Indiana to Dallas. So there's an assumption that there will be a former mayor of South Bend on that jet to take part. Uh There was also word now that Amy Klobuchar will find herself in Dallas tonight. And we're hearing that both of them are going to throw their support behind Joe Biden. This is a big moment for the Biden campaign coming off of that big win that took place uh, on Saturday in South Carolina. But what it really does is it underlines kind of the, the concern that the party has about the trajectory of the 2020 race in that they fear Bernie Sanders is gaining too much momentum. And here they are now piling all of their support behind the man they think should be able to beat him
1: in Joe Biden. And what happens with Michael Bloomberg in this equation?
9: Well, I mean, this is going to be the the unknown. This is the first time Michael Bloomberg will be on the ticket during a primary or a caucus, and there are a lot of delegates up for grabs right now. So there's an opportunity here for Michael Bloomberg, who hasn't really done well in the debates. He's wishy-washy when it comes to state polls, but does well on the national level of polling. There's an opportunity for him to kind of siphon off some of that support that would typically go to Joe Biden. So it may kind of erode that opportunity Biden has, but with this kind of new push of support that will come from, you know, uh, from uh, Buttigieg's supporters and from Klobuchar supporters, if they choose to go that way, this could be something that, you know, lets Joe Biden look at Michael Bloomberg further down and say, I'm up here and you're still down there.
1: What else are we seeing with regard to uh, endorsements? I saw the breaking news this morning, or was it late last night, that said that Barack Obama, former President Barack Obama had said he is not endorsing anybody uh, at this time. And then we saw Susan Rice just uh, a few minutes ago posting on her social media that she, she endorses Joe Biden.
9: Well, and I think that you're going to find that there are people from within the former administration that will probably find themselves lining up behind Joe Biden, A, because he's name recognition. He's, uh, you know, he's he's well liked by uh, a large portion of the different voting bases across the United States and because he's simply not Bernie Sanders. Remember, Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat. He's a social Democrat. He's an independent, but he's not a Democrat, but it's a two party system. So he's kind of forced to run, you know, along the middle with everyone else. And there's that fear that, oh, he's pulling people too far to the left well that's simply because he's not actually a democrat for someone like Barack Obama he has said that he was going to stay on the sidelines not interfere with the primary process up front but it would hard to be uh it would hard to you know kind of forecast or foresee him not following along with Joe Biden as we get later on into this process
1: right so the expectation there is not how can you not in- endorse your former vp Mr. President Obama, uh, when Barack Obama likely is just waiting until the Democratic nominee is found and then throw his support behind whomever that might be.
9: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, you don't want to do something that could potentially cause some kind of turmoil or if Joe Biden finds himself struggling later on here, Barack Obama would either have to pull his support and support someone else Mm. or stick with the support and it might not do anything. So you have to be very strategic as a former president uh, as to how you're going to use that leverage that you have. So it's not as simple.
1: And I noticed that Bernie Sanders was very quick after Mayor Pete pulled out of the race to say, we welcome All of Mayor Pete's supporters to get behind us. And it was almost as though he was alluding to Mayor Pete having endorsed him without actually saying that. It was a
9: very strategic tweet. It was strategic, and it kind of goes back to how Pete Buttigieg was giving responses on stage. Remember, uh, Bernie Sanders went after Buttigieg mm-hmm. for incorporating billionaires into his donor base, and Mike uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg would simply say, "Well, I want to be inclusive. I want all people to be involved in my party." And here Bernie Sanders is now saying, "Well, if you want everybody involved, tell your everybody to come over to my side." You know, it's unclear whether or not any of Buttigieg's uh, supporters would go over to Sanders because he kind of pitched him as the inflexible candidates. Uh, you know, it's it's still waiting to be seen. But there there's a little bit of a kind of a barb and a jab being given between all of the both current and former candidates right now.
1: It's interesting, too, on Elizabeth Warren's page, I think it might even be trending that she should leave the race. And it's the Biden bros are all over her. the Biden bots or bros or whatever we're calling them on social media.
9: Well, and I mean, it's hard to think that, you know, if if this were flipped around right now and Bernie Sanders was in Elizabeth Warren's position, there would be this growing call for Bernie Sanders to drop out and let Elizabeth Warren run free uh, to have kind of the, the 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 road to herself while she's running. You know, I think that she still believes that she is a different candidate than Bernie Sanders. She's been more transparent. She says that he is a little bit more opaque when it comes to his policy and that she should simply be the nominee over him. Uh, you know, she hasn't been able to pick up most of the support and ideologically they are the the same when it comes to how they want this country run. It's just he planted those seeds. She's kind of running with them. He has that grassroots that she simply doesn't have. Will she drop out? I guess we'll have to see after Super Tuesday, uh, depending on what her percentage and support looks like in those big states that she's trying to go after. Can
1: you tell us in like 45 seconds what to
9: expect on Super Tuesday? I think that we should expect to see big numbers for Bernie Sanders in the big states like Texas and California where there are upwards of 600 delegates. I think that Joe Biden is going to do well in places like Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Virginia that have a larger uh, area of African American voters that will go for him, and I think it's going to be difficult for Bernie Sanders in some of the states that do have a higher proportion of African American voters to find support there because he did so poorly in South Carolina. That could be a precursor to the uphill battle that uh, Bernie Sanders has in the weeks and months to come with the next- set of primaries. Never
1: a shortage of information. Uh, always a pleasure to speak with you, Reggie. Anytime. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington correspondent. You watch him on Global News, Global National. Stay tuned in and follow along on all reporting from Reggie Cicchini because he's clearly got the finger on the pulse. And there are some new stats in with regard to cancer rates in Canada. Don't turn off your radio, okay? We've got to talk this through. I'm one of the only. Well, I am the only female ambassador for prostate cancer in Canada because I have a couple of family members who are alive today because of early detection, and versus out here in the West.
7: Yeah, yeah, we see we see trends like that in terms of diagnosis and, and deaths across the country. Uh, that that we've seen, yeah. But the you know, the West is always sort of uh, um, uh, the the healthier spot in the country.
1: Is that because of lifestyle? Is it because we live outside more or are more aware on certain levels in terms of health and fitness?
7: Yeah, and there's I mean there's been lower smoking rates in the West and things like
1: that. Yeah, right. So that's the number one thing that everybody needs to know, obviously, not to do. But there are other pieces of this puzzle that might surprise some uh, in terms of the connection between uh, alcohol use and cancer rates.
7: Yeah, so that's that's something that we've we've been talking about for a while is that cancer uh, uh, alcohol is a known carcinogen for cancer and it affects different cancers differently but it's one of the the things that you can do as a Canadian is is not drink or or you know reduce your drinking.
1: And most people just assume that that would be directly associated with liver cancer but that's not the case.
7: No, it it, it affects a whole range of cancers, things like breast cancer as well and and colorectal cancer, things like that have an impact from alcohol. It doesn't, um, the risk factors sort of uh, vary across cancers, but alcohol is one of those ones that is common to several cancers.
1: We're with Sean Cheery, who's the Senior Manager of Analysis for the Canadian Cancer Society. And going through some of these numbers, you mentioned lung cancer is number one, still leading cause of death, um, accounting for 25% of all cancer deaths. But that's followed by colorectal, pancreatic, and breast cancers. Now, colon cancer and breast cancer, certainly uh, early detection is a huge key with these with regard to uh, colonoscopies, mammograms, and with prostate cancer, with just getting that, is it the PSA test?
7: The PSA test, and and the the organized grading programs that we have in Canada are cervical, uh, colorectal, and breast, and so getting a, a mammogram, a regular mammogram for women, and for uh, for for colorectal, it's actually a a stool test. Uh, it's uh, depending on the province you're in. It's either FIT or FOBT test. So you don't go right to a colonoscopy. You do the stool test first, and then they would order a colonoscopy for those that have uh, results where they had they have concerns. But you don't have to get that colonoscopy. The the, the stool test is the thing that it's a simple stool test. So,
1: it is so much, easy. much
7: much less invasive. If
1: that and I've had both because my mom is a colon a two time colon cancer survivor actually. And so we we go through the process. And I was put in line first to do the stool test before doing my first colonoscopy. And I thought to myself, are you kidding? I, I don't want to do this test. And then I did it. It was nothing. It was zero. It was the least invasive of tests, like easier than a blood blood test to take care of. And then you get the intel and information and peace of mind that comes with it. Same with the mammogram. We, we get complex, Sean. I don't know if you can... Clarify uh, the miss messages on getting a mammogram to mammogram or not to mammogram. What is the final say on that?
7: I mean it's 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 recommended I think you know there are some potential limitations to the to mammography but it is the gold standard best test that we have currently in the country and it's something you know you make an informed decision on any screening um, with your healthcare provider right. but it's something where we're finding it early and breast cancer really is an example of where we've seen great success so the death can, the the breast cancer death rates have been cut in half Uh, almost 49% since it peaked in the mid 1980s. And this is mostly due to improvements both in screening and treatment. So if you're able to catch a cancer early, there's better treatment options and and better options for for your outcomes.
1: I think that number right there, when you say it's cut in half, people need to listen to that because it is scary to go get checked. I'm telling you, mammograms don't hurt. Uh, The toughest part is walking in because you're fearful of of a possible positive. And and there's no greater feeling than walking out with a negative. And if you do walk out with with a positive test that needs a biopsy and you're moving forward, at least you're in the best hands in in a country that's that's taking care of of such things. And, And early detection, as you said, is so key. Prostate cancer is a simple blood test now.
7: Yes, yeah, the PSA
1: test. Yeah. And, but people think it's more invasive than that, so I just had to state yeah. that.
7: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and it's still, like, it's the combination of the digital rectal exam that your healthcare provider would do, and then the blood test for a PSA test.
1: Which is far, far easier to go through than invasive surgery when you ignore the symptoms of prostate uh, issues, I will say, and I'm qualified to do so, because my dad told me to tell everybody far and wide, because he was ignoring the symptoms for a long, long time and ended up having having to go through some very scary stuff, but he's fine. He's cancer-free today, as is my mom. So I'm bringing it back to the personal stories because I think that's the, the key behind your numbers here, Sean, today, is, is just about every single person listening right now can tell a tale of somebody who's been through some sort of cancer diagnosis or has loved and cared for and supported somebody who's gone through one. So it's, it's important to be aware
7: yeah and that you know that one in two Canadians experiencing cancer in their lifetime, you know it, it, very few Canadians probably don't know a person that hasn't experienced cancer or haven't experienced it themselves. so
1: how, okay, just before I let you go how how tied to these numbers is the fact that we do have an aging population, the silver tsunami. We're living longer, and perhaps I mean the numbers of of men diagnosed with prostate cancer and yet least likely to to die of prostate cancer are increasing too, right?
7: Yeah, so what we're seeing is the actual number of cases is going up, but the rate itself is declining right. uh, when you when you standardize it for the population. But those number of cases, it's particularly tied to having an aging population and then the population growth we're experiencing as a country. Those are the two uh, main drivers that we're seeing. And we know, that, you know the projections remind us that more work needs to be done to reduce the, you know, the number of people being diagnosed with cancer. But we're seeing people survive, uh, and there's increases in survival.
1: Incredibly good news to end on there. So thanks for this, Sean.
7: Thank you very much, Jody. Have a good day.
1: You too. That's Sean Sheary, the Senior Manager of Analysis for the Canadian Cancer Society.